God, we come before you this morning and we consider it a privilege, a high privilege to be able to gather, Lord, as your church today, uh, to even hear from your word. God, we uh, understand that over 1.1 billion people do not have the Bible in their own language throughout the world. And yet, Lord, we have the word not only in our own language, but we're able to, to hear it proclaimed and preached this morning. So, Lord, I pray uh, or for a deep hunger for it today. I pray for an openness and a willingness to hear from you and to respond in faithfulness. Um, so, Lord, I pray that you be our teacher, that you be our guide through this passage. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, there's something really exciting about a home improvement project. Uh, no matter how inconvenient at times they can be, and no matter if you decide to be brave enough to do it on your own, uh, or if you decide to hire somebody to do it uh, for you. Now, I'm not talking about the big renovation projects that tend to be very extensive and very expensive, you know, like a new roof or something. I'm talking about kind of these small, um, you know, cosmetic projects uh, that we tend to do from time to time around the home, like a new um, fresh coat of paint on the walls or new light fixtures, new carpet, even just new decorations, you know, new decor uh, throughout uh, the home. And there's something exciting about that because, you know, for us, as we think about living in our homes, we, we have the ability to enhance them, to make them more enjoyable to live in, to make them more uh, beautiful and appealing and, and attractive. You know, there's something that gives us joy when we walk into a room and it has that fresh coat of paint or there's new decorations throughout uh, the house. Well, this process of enhancing our homes, making them more attractive and appealing, can actually be described as adorning your home. Now, the word adorn is not a word that we tend to use in everyday, you know, kind of conversation, but adorn means to beautify or to make attractive, to make something more appealing. And we adorn all kinds of things in our lives, not just our homes, but you can adorn your offices, you uh, can adorn even your car in a couple of weeks, or if you're the Lucas Savages starting tomorrow, you'll adorn your Christmas tree and get ready for the Christmas season. Uh, some people adorn even their pets and their dogs, their cats. Uh, if, if, that's, uh, if the shoe fits, you can wear that one. Um, but we can adorn all kinds of things. But did you know that we are called as God's people to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are actually called to live in a certain way where we can actually make the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, more attractive, more appealing, more desirable for the people around us. Now, you're probably wondering how. <laughs> I mean, isn't the gospel message beautiful enough? I mean, the gospel message is the greatest news known to man, that God rescues sinners through Jesus's death and resurrection. So how can we make that more attractive? Well, that's a great question. In fact, that's the question that the Apostle Paul is trying to answer in Titus chapter 2. That is the question that I'm aiming to answer this morning. How do God's people adorn the gospel? Now, before we look at uh, verse 1, uh, it is important to understand that we are moving in the section of Titus in which Paul is beginning to set forth several commands for Titus and the church to follow. In chapter 1, we only had one command. That was verse 13, where Paul exhorted Titus, the church, and us to rebuke sharply those who contradict uh, sound doctrine. It's the only command in chapter 1. 
As we move into chapters two and three, there are over 10 commands that Paul gives Titus and gives the church uh, to follow. And these commands, these 10 commands paint a picture of what it looks like for the church to follow God's design for the church. God is very specific in how the church should function and operate, representing the name of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to to find is that these 10 commands are meant to, to move God's people into action, whereby the gospel is not just something we believe in, but the gospel is a power that actually shapes our behavior. And so don't look past verse 1. Verse 1 is the second command in this entire letter, and here we find the central command of this entire passage. Paul commands Titus to teach or proclaim what accords with sound or healthy doctrine. Now, if you've read this passage before, there's a temptation that you probably experienced. The temptation is just to skip over verse 1 and move on to verses 2 through 10 to get into the instructions, to get into the specifics of how we can adorn the gospel. But Paul won't let us do that. Paul understood the necessity for the church to not only know sound doctrine, to not only believe in sound doctrine, but for the church to be saturated with sound doctrine. Now, what is sound doctrine? Well, sound doctrine historically has related to two different things. Uh, One, sound doctrine is sometimes used as a synonym for the gospel. Some people just use sound doctrine and they're referring to the good news of Jesus. The more popular usage is that sound doctrine actually refers to teaching about God and the Christian faith that agrees with the Bible. It's biblical truth that's foundational to the Christian faith. Or you could put it this way, that sound doctrine is grounding our beliefs in what the Bible says, okay? And so Paul is commanding Titus to ground and saturate the church with sound doctrine. Now, that's helpful uh, in particular because of what we studied in the last passage, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, as, as Paul started to explain the ministry of false teachers and their false teaching. If you remember, Paul told Titus, hey, you need to silence them and you need to rebuke them. Well, here's the third way or a third response to false teaching. Paul wants Titus to saturate the church with healthy and sound doctrine, to teach sound doctrine consistently and regularly and comprehensively in order to protect the church. Now, verse one is also very important because what we're going to notice in this passage is that three different times, Paul calls us to live in a certain way so that we can actually impact unbelievers and a watching world's perception of the gospel. I'm going to try to link uh, these three different references all throughout this morning, but I want to point these out before we dive in. Notice at the end of verse 5, he calls young women to be godly so that the word of God may not be reviled. Reviled by who? by unbelievers, by outsiders. Verse eight, uh, Paul's calling Titus and the young men to be godly so that an opponent, an outsider, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to talk about us. And then, of course, notice at the end of verse 10, bond servants are to be godly so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. Now, those are various ways of basically saying the same thing. 
that we can live in such a way where people look at the gospel, they look at Jesus, and they say, I want that. And we are called to live in such a way to make that a reality. But verse 1 is so foundational. Verse 1 undergirds verses 2 through 10. That, that without verse 1, verses 2 through 10 make absolutely no sense. Verses 2 through 10 are impossible to live out without verse 1. That sound doctrine curbs corrupt conduct. Now, as we move into verses 2 through 10, Paul shows us that there is an appropriate response to sound doctrine by outlining specific behavior for five different categories of people. So as sound doctrine is taught, as it is embraced by the church, it actually shapes the kind of people that the church ought to be, one that adorns the gospel. Here's how. Starting in verse 2, notice the first group that Paul addresses. Uh, it is the older men. Now, scholars believe that given the average life expectancy in the ancient world, that this likely pertained to men who were 50 years of age or older. Now, I think that we should understand these age categories to be somewhat relative and largely determined based on the context and the time in which you are living. In other words, what might be old age at one time in one context may not be old age in another time in another context. But nevertheless, notice that there are six characteristics that Paul calls the older men to embody. The first one there that you'll notice is that Paul calls them to be sober-minded. This means to be level-headed, to be temperate, this is a requirement also for elders and deacons, which is outlined in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and those qualifications there. But then the second uh, characteristic, notice, they are to be dignified or respectable. In other words, older men, you are to be the type of follower of Jesus where other people look at your relationship with the Lord, they look at your godliness and they say, wow, that is a respectable example uh, to follow. This is also a requirement of deacons from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then thirdly, uh, notice that another characteristic Paul calls them to is to be uh, self-controlled. Self-controlled is uh, another requirement of elders from Titus chapter 1. Uh, Self-control is the most frequently used characteristic in chapter 2 of Titus. It's used in chapter, uh, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse uh, 12. I just want to pause there. Looking at these first three characteristics if you are a seasoned man, do you feel challenged enough? Like these three characteristics are the characteristics to be an elder and a deacon in the church. And Paul is calling you to pursue and cultivate those characteristics in your own life. Well, Paul goes on. He's not done yet. He adds three more characteristics for older men to pursue. They are to be sound in faith, sound in love, and steadfastness. Okay, so Paul's call, calling these older men uh, to trust in God, to love others, and to have this hope-inspired perseverance, which, by the way, is so Pauline. Paul loves the triad of love, faith, and hope. And yet what he's saying here is that the older men are to live in such a way that screams that they are mature in the Lord, that they are seasoned spiritually, that they take their relationship with God seriously. And so the question for you, older men, is are you putting forth 
the necessary effort and time and making this a priority in your life to be as godly as possible. This is a picture for you of how you can adorn the gospel. Well, it's a challenge uh, for the older men, but if you think that Paul is going to let the older women off the hook, you are mistaken. If you look at verse 3, Paul says, in the same way, meaning, hey, older women, buckle up, it's your turn. All right? Now, here he provides five challenges for the older women. And if you notice, the first, fourth, and fifth are positioned in the positive. The second and third are on the do not do list, if you will. All right, let's walk through these. The first one, he calls them to be reverent in behavior. This means to be holy, to be pleasing to God. In other words, when you look at an older woman, you should automatically think they're godly. You should look at their life and say, man, they love Jesus and it's clear. And then the second uh, challenge here, this is on the do not do list. He says you are not to be a slanderer. This means to talk negatively about somebody and maybe uh, even say some things that are untrue about somebody else. Being a slanderer is typically linked uh, to gossip. I mean, how easy is this to slip in, right? As you're maybe uh, connecting with other ladies and you have the, the, the pure and the right motivation to want to connect relationally, man, how easy is it to slip in some gossip and maybe even some slander? Uh, again, it, with the right motivation, wanting to connect, wanting to kind of keep the conversation going, to kind of paint somebody else in a negative light. Older women, you must be on guard. Godly women know how to guard their tongues. But then notice the third one here. He says, not to be a slave to much wine. This literally means to be bound to wine. Okay, so moderation is the key. So be careful with your words. Be careful with alcohol. And notice number four here. Uh, they are to teach <clears throat> what is good. Now, this word here does not mean to teach in a formal uh, setting, but it actually refers to a living example, kind of a word and, and D type of, of teaching. They are to, to model what it looks like to be a godly woman, which makes sense when you read the next verse, verse 4, where Paul says, fifthly here, older women are to train or encourage younger women. All right? Now, let me emphasize this just for a moment because I want you to, to notice the connection here between verses 3 and 4. Older women, Paul lists these qualities you are to pursue, some things not to pursue in verse 3. And then he gets to verse 4, and he says, so that, that, that is a purpose clause. He says, do all these things so that you may train or encourage younger women. Okay, what we can draw from that is that, older woman, your godliness is never an end in and of itself, that your godliness exists for the next generation. And if you are a seasoned woman in the room right now, you need to understand that younger women need you. Younger women, they need your godliness. They need your experience. They need your wisdom. They, they need your, your support and what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to love their husband, what it looks like to even love their children, because it's hard. And it just feels like it's getting harder and harder. And in particular, for a younger woman, man, there is so much pressure in today's culture to like have it all, 
right? To, to have a spotless house, to have the, the best marriage, to, to pour into your kids, to, to be this domestic goddess, you know, in your home, right? To have the, the thriving career, to, to be all things to all people. Look, older women, the younger women need you to come around them and to lovingly say, look, your highest priority in your life is your godliness. Your number one priority is your relationship with Jesus. Number two is your husband. Number three is your children. Number four is to create this culture in the home where it's a place of refuge, where the gospel can be displayed. And so look, older woman, our church needs you. Like my question for you is, who are you pouring into in your life? How are you obeying verse four in your life? Can you point to younger women and say, because of my influence in their life, they are following Jesus better. They're a better spouse. They're a better parent because I'm pouring into, I'm training, I'm encouraging them. And look, maybe I can just speak to our seasoned saints just for a moment. I love you guys dearly. Man, I love you so much. But how can you read verses three and four, and not conclude that our church needs you? How can you not conclude after reading these first couple verses and say how desperately our church needs you in order to be a healthy flock, right? My, my challenge, if you're a seasoned saint in the room, is to not fall prey to this cultural lie around us that just because you're old, that you're unnecessary. That just because you're old, you have nothing more to give. That just because you're old, now it's me time. I've, I've put forth the effort for, for decades. I've served in the church in this way and that way. Now it's the younger people to step up. Don't believe that lie. Like we, we need you to, to finish well. We need you to, to lean in all the more. And I know this because I've, I've heard from several of you. There's this haunting suspicion in the back of your mind, wondering, do I have anything to give? I'm not tech savvy. I'm not hip. I'm not this. I'm not that. I don't know if, if I have anything to give to the younger generations. And look, let me just push back on that for a moment. We don't need you to be the social media wizard. We need your godliness. Like, we don't need you to show us the latest amazing app we need your wisdom. We don't need you to be cool and, and hip and, and know all the latest fads and fashions. Like, no, we need your experience of walking with Jesus for four, five, six, maybe seven decades and to show us the way. We need you, out of humility, to show us maybe your failures, maybe things that you've done wrong and help us not make the same mistakes. I remember in college, I was... Uh, on this vacation with some of my closest friends. And one of my closest friends' dad came with us and he kind of treated us uh, on vacation. He's a godly man. His name's Brian Sturzer. And, you know, as college guys, we're in the pool, you know, playing. We're a little rowdy. You know, we had the ball. We're kind of throwing it back and forth. And there are these older people that came over to us and started kind of yelling at us, hey, pipe down. You know, you're, you're making too much noise. And my friend's dad saw that and he came over to us and he said something I'll never forget. He wasn't trying to be profound, but I haven't forgotten it to this day. 
He said, boys, when you get older, you have two options. You can either become an older person who's filled with bitterness, or you can be filled with gratitude. You can either view life through the lens of pessimism, or you can view life through the lens of joy and gratitude. And I just share that with you this morning. I just lay that before you. And in the authority of God's word in this passage, I'm calling you to lean into the next generation with a gospel-shaped enthusiasm and not to lean away with this type of bitter pessimism. We need you. We need you to finish well. We need you not to limp into the finish line. And we need you to show us an example of what it looks like to persevere until the very end. All right, you've got this, this worldly sermon being preached at you almost every day that when you're old, you live for yourself. And I'm calling you, no, 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 pour yourself out for the gospel. Do the exact opposite of what the world is saying and lean in to the church. That's the way that you can adorn the gospel. And speaking from the younger generations, we desperately need you. Well, Paul moves on. He moves on to the younger women, the younger men here in verses 4 through 8. Notice first, he gives a charge to the younger women in verses 4 through 5. And I see three particular areas of challenge. Uh, Younger women, Paul first calls you to be a certain kind of wife uh, and mother. Verse 4, he calls you to love your husband and to love your children well. To view your husband not as uh, someone just to put up with, right? But to view your husband uh, as a daily opportunity to love sacrificially. He even says in verse 5 to be uh, submissive to your husband. There's that S word, right? That we kind of recoil when we see that. But notice this is not uh, to mean that your, your husband's a dictator in the home. This does not mean, wife, that your opinion does not matter. What this means is that, wife, you have a, a humble disposition toward your husband of wanting to be led. There's a posture of wanting to submit to your husband's leadership. And, and I just humbly ask you today, is that your posture if you're married? If you're a wife here, do you have a, a posture of wanting your, your husband to or do you find yourself butting heads with him because you want to be the primary voice of authority in the marriage. Kathy Keller, who is the wife of New York City church planner and pastor Tim Keller, talks about this concept of submissive, uh, being, having a submissive spirit. And she explained it this way. I thought this was helpful. She said, you know, this means that in matters of disagreements, I yield to Tim, her husband, uh, who has the deciding vote. So she says, I get a vote, Tim gets a vote, but then Tim gets the deciding vote. It's a way to kind of understand what it means to submit to your husband. And she gave an example of being called to church plant in New York City decades ago. And she says, look, Tim wanted to do it. I did not want to do it. And so Tim, who's wanting to love his wife sacrificially and and humbly says, okay, we won't go then. We, We won't do this. But then she says, oh, no, you don't. You're not putting this on me. You lead, you make the decision and bear the responsibility. Like that is a beautiful example and picture of what it looks like for the husband to lead, dying to self, leading well, and the wife submitting. That is a way to beautify the gospel in the home. 
But then Paul adds uh, to love your children. Again, this is the, the first area still. Love your children well. Yes, as we talked about this morning, there are moments, maybe many moments of frustration, right? As we raise these little image bearers, but as we were reminded in child dedication, these are gifts from the Lord, blessings from the Lord, not inconveniences. So our children are first ministry. Our children are kind of the first place where we try to live out the gospel, we pour into them. And then Paul says, younger women are to work at home. Now, this is not a command to urge women to only stay at home. That would contradict other passages that we know. But rather, this has the idea of, of supervising or managing your household with intentionality and conscientiousness. Right, this supports what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, calls the, the wife, the woman there, to manage their household well. Okay, so that's the first area. Uh, notice uh, the second area Paul challenges younger women is to cultivate Christ-like character. Look, he calls them to be self-controlled and pure, meaning, kind of put these two together, there's a consistency uh, to your uh, godliness, to your relationship with God due to being disciplined, having a mastery over yourself and your desires and your cravings that results in being a woman of virtue. And then the third area, I thought this was so interesting. Verse five, the third area is that of, uh, of an attitude, having a godly attitude. He uses this word kindness in verses four through five. And at first you're reading this and you're like, is that a typo? Why is he kind of throwing in kindness here? It seems so random. And yet when you think about it, is there a greater virtue in which all of us need to grow in more than kindness? And younger woman, if you notice, kindness is sandwiched between what? Between working at home and submitting to your husband, right? This is a challenge, right? To have this type of attitude of warmth and gentleness and compassion to do all these things, not with a spirit of I have to, but with a spirit and eagerness to please the Lord with gladness. This is a way that you can adorn the gospel. Well, Paul shows no partiality in challenging the people of God. He has held no punches toward the older men, the older women, the younger women. But now he's going to finish here. Well, now the fourth one here is the, the younger men in verses six through eight. This inevitably includes Titus, who was a young man himself. Notice verse six, he calls the younger men to be self-controlled. Right, again, this is the most frequently used characteristic. And this call to be disciplined, to possess a self-mastery, involves a control of temper and tongue and your ambition and bodily appetites. Now, there's no wonder why Paul hammers home this one for young men. Young men tend to struggle with self-control, struggle with lacking restraint, being level-headed. As J.C. Ryle once said, being ruled by the desires of your body will murder your soul. And in addition, Paul calls Titus, who again is a young man, to be a model of good works and in his teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. So Titus here is called to lead by example. And this is, again, in sharp contrast to the false teachers who had a, a, an, an emptiness to their good works from verse 16 of chapter 1. Paul, uh, Paul's calling Titus to have a type of blamelessness where his opponents will be put to shame. 
And the reason why they'll be put to shame is because they have nothing bad to say about Titus. They have no charges they can bring against him. What a calling and a challenge for Titus and the young men uh, to beautify the gospel in this way. And then the fifth group here, verses 9 and 10, Paul challenges the bond servants. This could uh, be application even for employees today in some regard. Uh, Titus urges them to adorn the gospel in five specific ways. Number one, to submit uh, to their masters or bosses in everything, to be well-pleasing to them, to not talk back to them, to not steal from them or pilfer. That's what that word means in verse 10. To demonstrate complete faithfulness or to show good faith. They are to do all this. So then verse 10, they adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Man, what a challenge. <laughs> you get to the end of that. And, and this, is, this is heavy stuff for the church of Jesus Christ as he's hitting every age group, men and women. And I love the end of verse 10. I think that's a great summary statement for this entire section to live in such a way as to beautify, to make attractive and appealing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul goes at length here to challenge every age group, every gender, men and women, old and young, to, to dedicate themselves to live a life of godliness so that other people look at the gospel and they say, man, I want that. And my challenge for us today is to lay before you no matter where you find yourself, are you putting forth the appropriate amount of effort and time in cultivating these Christ-like virtues in your own life to such a degree that it's making an influence, an impact on the people around you as it relates to the gospel? I'm calling you to, to lean into the way that you're living out the gospel in your own life. I love this challenge by J.C. Ryle. I think this is very appropriate for us in this passage. He says, Let me warn all careless members of churches to beware, lest they trifle their souls into hell. You live on year after year as if there was no battle to be fought with sin, the world, and the devil. You pass through life a smiling, laughing, gentleman-like or lady-like person and behave as if there was no devil, no heaven, and no hell Oh, careless churchman or careless dissenter, careless Episcopalian, careless Presbyterian, careless independent, careless Baptist, awake and see eternal realities in their true light. Awake and put on the armor of God. Awake and fight hard for life. Tremble, tremble, and repent. I think that's such an appropriate challenge for us because we cannot afford Pennington Park Church to be careless in our pursuit of godliness. We cannot afford to be kind of half-hearted in our relationship with God. Can't afford to be distracted by the things of this world, to be complacent. Look, the gospel is too beautiful to not give our lives to make as attractive and desirable as possible. I mean, I love this passage. It's so helpful, isn't it? So specific. A lot of application here, but I want to zoom out as we, before we close here. I want to even pull out three more, I think, specific and concluding applications for us as we think about Titus chapter 2. Here's the first one that really popped out to me. So thinking about application is that every Christian 
should be in a discipleship relationship. I mean, the emphasis here, you, you, you can't miss it. The intergenerational ministry of the church, you, you cannot uh, avoid that in this passage. There's a beautiful picture of every person, no matter what life stage, they are to be engaged in the ministry of the church. And this speaks to one of our core values as a church, being united in Christ and diverse. Or if you're a Christian, if you're in Jesus, you have an objective unity that Jesus established with every believer. At the same time, we don't all look the same. And there's beauty in that. I mean, look around. Like, we're not just a church of a bunch of 35-year-old males. No, like we have an intergenerational uh, reality to our congregation, and that is beautiful. But what Titus 2 is calling us to is to avoid creating a bunch of ministries that are so life stage dependent where we silo off each generation and we miss out on the beauty and the power of intergenerational ministry where the young and old are learning and walking together as they follow Jesus. Right? That's why we love our life groups, our, our small groups here. That's why we love people kind of pouring into one another, even being intergenerational small groups. Like we love kind of various ministries that have young and old together. If you've been to the, the men's ministry that happens every couple of months on a Saturday morning, you're like, oh, it's young and old together. We all have the same need. We all need Jesus and we all need one another and linking arms and following Christ together. I think the best way to capture this is through discipleship relationships. And I, I've said this before, but I, I kind of liken this to being on the discipleship ladder where you're on this ladder and you look up and the person above you on the, the rung above you is like an apostle Paul. That person's pouring into you. But then you look below, the, the rung below you is a Titus type person. That's a Timothy type person where you're pouring into that person. And you need someone above you and you need someone Below you, below you, everybody needs a Paul. Everybody needs a Titus, someone pouring into you and someone that you are pouring into. And my question for you is, do you have that in your life? I'm not just talking about, do you have friends? I'm talking about, do you have a, an intentionality, a discipleship, relationship with other believers? And if not, why not? If not, why don't you have somebody pouring into you? Do you think that you're strong enough spiritually to not have that? Uh, if I'm the enemy, that's exactly where I want you. Thinking, yeah, I'm going to convince this believer they don't need someone pouring in. They've been walking with Jesus for, for several years. They go to church every week. They don't need accountability. They don't need someone a few years down the road pouring into them. No, no, no. no. We read Titus 2. And we see this need for discipleship, every single person, someone pouring into them and others pouring into other people. Well, another thing that stood out to me uh, reading this passage, another application is do not overlook the ordinary moments of life. I was reading this and I'm like, man, how routine are these environments and relationships? <laughs> I mean, these are so everyday. These are so mundane. These are so ordinary. And I think that's a good reminder. It's a good challenge to not believe that the Christian life, being a Christian, is all about these big moments of dramatic Christian service and sacrifice. 
right? Like that's not the Christian life. You might have a few of those in your life, but predominantly, like the reality is the Christian life is largely lived in the mundane. It's largely lived in the ordinary, in the routine, in just the everydayness of life. I heard one person say that the hardest part of the Christian life is that it's so daily. It's so true, right? The hardest part is every day God calls you to be faithful and obedient every moment of the day, right? You probably have heard this said before, but everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to do the dishes, right? And the calling here is, look, don't focus on the big things. Focus on the small things and being faithful with that, changing the 19th diaper of the day, <laughs> taking out the trash when no one is watching, responding to your kids who are acting like wild beasts with grace and patience, right? Ha- having a, a quiet life, pursuing faithfulness, purity, and godliness. You know, going next door and having those intentional conversations with, with neighbors, right? It's, it's these quiet moments of faithfulness. Really, the Lord gives us thousands of those every day, you know, we, we, we try to pursue faithfulness seven days a week, 52 weeks in a year, year after year after year. Guess what the result is? You're going to live a life of adorning the gospel. Focus on those ordinary moments. And then thirdly, how could I not talk about this one? Is that our behavior should beautify the gospel flowing directly from it. It would be a mistake to view verses two through 10 as your new to-do list. That's not what I'm calling you to today. I'm not calling you to skip over the gospel, skip over verse one and think, okay, now it's up to me. That would be a mistake because in order to adorn the gospel with your life, you must embrace the gospel in your hearts. Verses 2 through 10 are not kind of your new to-do list in order to earn God's approval and acceptance and love. No, the reality is, is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, being in Jesus, hidden in Jesus, God already loves you fully. He's already accepted you fully. And out of that reality, guess what directly froze from that? It's verses 2 through 10. And I really feel like this is the key that unlocks the mystery of how we beautify and adorn the gospel, that it starts with being enthralled with the gospel and everything else flows from that. Like it starts with delighting in the good news of Jesus Christ. And out of that place flows this desire to live out verses two through 10, right? To to understand that the good news of Jesus is that he, even though he was sinless, perfect, even though he was the son of God, he looked upon your helpless states. He looked at your sin. He looked at your guilty deeds. He looked at your despicable disobedience. And he turned to the father and he said, I will pay for that. He turned to the father and he said, I will die so that he doesn't have to. I will pay the price so that she does not have to pay it. And our sinless savior got up on a cross and he died a brutal, torturous death so that your sinful soul could be counted free. So your guilty life could be washed and made new, covered in the grace and the forgiveness of God. 
Yeah, he died in your place, not because you deserved it. Don't, don't pat yourself on the back. You, you were his enemy, and he demonstrated his great mercy and love by dying in your place. It's all grace. It's all grace. And Jesus rose from the dead. Our victorious king rose, and he calls everyone to believe, to trust in him. And not only that, but guess what flows from that? He calls us to take this good news, this gospel message, and to make it attractive by living a godly life, a life of obedience, a life that's fully surrendered to him, where other people say to you, man, you not only claim with your mouth you believe in Jesus, but I see your life that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is your king. And that's, that's my question for you. Are you adorning the gospel with your life to such a degree that people want Jesus? And if not, why not? If not, do you think that being a Christian is, to go back to the opening illustration, being a Christian is, is kind of inviting God into your life and he does some cosmetic projects for you? He kind of does a facelift in your life and it makes some improvements and that's it? That, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life means a complete renovation of your life, a, a demolishing your life, and then he builds a new one. I'll close with C.S. Lewis' quote here. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and to live in it himself. That's the key to, to understanding this passage, understanding the Christian life. God's not coming into your life to make a few improvements, to modify some behavior. He wants to make you new so he can live inside of you and empower you to beautify the gospel. Church, let's be people, let's be a church that pursues that life. Let's pray together. God, we give you Oh, so much praise, King Jesus, for the work that you've done on our behalf. We thank you for your grace, your endless grace. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for making a way when there was no way for us to be saved. God, I pray that you would take the gospel truth and that you would rub it deep in our hearts. Lord, so deep in our hearts that we are so in awe of your work that we live a life that is fully surrendered to you. Lord, we pray for gospel opportunities even this week, perhaps even tomorrow night, or as we interact with people who don't know you, don't know anything about the church, we pray that you'd help us to make the gospel attractive and being godly and faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.